When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to The Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite podcast where we analyze, discuss, and disseminate ideas around history, philosophy, mythology, and of course, where they bleed into our popular culture. As always, I am very stoked, very pumped, very excited to be here today with my wonderful wife and co-host, Laurel. That's me. And I'm in particular excited. So... A few months ago, we did a goodbye to Peter Capaldi as the Doctor episode. And at it, we promised that when this new season of Doctor Who is over, we would do an episode about it. And like so many Midnight Myth promises that we always keep. I was going to say, we we are big promise keepers. We never break them. (laughs) We are keeping that promise to you, our fellow Doctor Whoian, Doctor Whovilles, Doctor whatever you want to call it. We are here to talk all things Doctor Who. Season 11. With Jodie Whittaker, the first female Doctor. So before we dive in fully into this, a preamble There's a lot of chatter on the interwebs about this, and there are a lot of people staking their claim on whether this was the greatest season or the suckiest season. And uh, as always, when that happens, the trolls tend to win. We're not really going to touch upon too many or maybe even any of those major, you know, comment thread, you ruined my doctor because you made her a woman or you made her care about liberal causes, debates that are happening. But it would be remiss if we didn't recognize they were happening. Yeah, yeah, we'll acknowledge them. But we don't do reviews here on the podcast, and we certainly try not to engage with trolls or debate someone who is not present. So we are here to wrap up the season and our thoughts on some of the major themes of it and to, you know, explore it from what uh, you were just saying, philosophy, history, and mythology, and say these are the influences going into this season, and here are the things that we can take away and what we can learn about ourselves from it. And it's safe to say that it it was contentious, and there is a debate, um, and that debate that's happening out there, if anybody wants to engage me with it, I'd be happy to do it, but it probably won't be this podcast and as as always, we're going to spoil the living hell out of the last season of Doctor Who. So I really hope you've seen it before we discuss it, because I think it's worth seeing with fresh eyes. But if you don't care about spoilers, you're welcome to join us. Totally up to you. Um, so let's dive in. Let's do this. Yeah. And uh, before we do, if you want to hit us up, how can people hit us up, Laurel? Well, we are on social media. You can tweet us at The Midnight Myth on Twitter. You can visit us on Facebook or on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. You can also head to our website, www.midnightmyth.com, for some blogs and extra content there. And then if you haven't yet, make sure you hit subscribe on your favorite podcast listening app. 
and leave us a rating or a review, especially on Apple Podcasts, because it helps us get into other people's ear holes. So I'd like to kick the conversation off with a quote, and I'm going to ask for your response to the quote. Is that okay? Please, yeah. So here's the quote. I love Doctor Who as a big, popular, mainstream, accessible show. So I wanted to make sure that every member of the audience felt they had a relatable character, an access point. Hopefully it means that the show can resonate with the broadest possible audience. That is from Chris. Uh, I was going to say, is that from Chris Chibnall? Chibnall. Okay. I, I don't know how to say his last name. Chris Chibnall, who is the main um, sort of, they call him the showrunner. He's written half of the season. He made a lot of casting decisions. He's sort of the brain behind it. He, he, I don't think he directed any of the episodes. So that was a, his quote about the season before it launched. So my question to you, Laurel, was, was he successful? I love that quote. And I, I think my answer in a yes or no is yes, he was successful. Um, what I was excited about with the choices that he made this season relating to that quote, um, especially with introducing Team TARDIS rather than a single companion who just happens to be a beautiful woman with long legs and a tight skirt, um, is that he he gave us a team, a, a group of companions who look like us. Somebody in that TARDIS looks like a lot of us, and certainly not every single uh, person will look up and see someone who reflects their race or their gender identity or their uh, level of ability or their relationship to this, that, and the other. But damn, we got a lot closer than we have been in the past. And... What excites me a lot is that the companion to the doctor has always been the audience surrogate, right? Uh, so if I'm supposed to identify with that person the most because they're this access point into uh, a, a crazy universe where you can travel in time and space and you're traveling with a super clever space alien who's a thousand years old and can think 20 times faster than I can... I want to be able to care about them. I want to be able to see myself in them and to give that opportunity to more people than just, you know, sexy women is awesome. And I think it also gave us a, a really rich uh, playground for dramatic material and exploring the really complex web of relationships, how people deal with grief, how people deal with coming of age at any age. And I, I really love it. And I, I think he was very successful in that. Yes. That's a really fantastic point because I, at every level, I saw myself in some way or some form through the eyes or in the shoes of the companions, Right. whether it was Ryan's sort of like boyful, boyish, teenage boyishness. Yeah. Like when he grabbed a, you know, laser gun, it's just like, I've been preparing my whole life for this. So I'm like, Call oh yeah, duty. that's me. Yeah. You know, I totally got that. <laughs> Or whether it was, you know, Graham's loving devotion to his family and to his departed wife and his adopted uh, step grandson, you know, I could I'd see myself in that. Or yeah. or Yaz's respect to duty um, and her respect to her family and to her profession and her trying to like like scrap and and like fight her way to the top of the police force no matter what, like. All of those things were relatable yeah. elements that, that to me, I thought gave me that access point. And I love also just Yaz's just ability to just jump head first into everything. She just wants to follow the doctor's charge in all the time without a question. And I love it. Because she's a cop. She's, she's a badass. Great. Yeah. It totally makes sense. Yeah. I'm with it. So I think that he was largely successful. If we take that thesis to the Doctor Who and whether or not one thinks it's a great season of Doctor Who... The question that I asked is, did he achieve the accessibility that he was looking for? Uh, and I think that he did. And I think the ratings do bear that so, out. Yeah, they do. It was it was one of the best rated Doctor Who seasons in recent history. Yeah, and it certainly experienced some ratings drop-offs from the initial premiere. But that is what always happens with Doctor Who. It always drops in ratings after the initial premiere. And this one maintained more audience than previous seasons have. So people are interested. People are watching it. And I think that it's a newer audience than it ever has been. Yeah. And I think there is also part of the reason you see drop off 
we are used to television in this current era really being about, especially high quality television, I should say, really being about the like eight, nine to 13 hour long movie. Yeah. And we're really into seeing these huge, the epic, bingeable content. Yeah. Yeah. And really big stories with lots of characters and complex threads and every little detail when you pay attention to means something in the next. And a large part of that, that's in a like life after things like the Sopranos and Game of Thrones and Mad Men, right? Those kind of shows right. got us in that frame of mind. I think because this this season directly did not do that. It makes sense that people looking for that would maybe start tapering off when they realize like, oh, I could watch this episode later because the order isn't as important or the detail here doesn't really matter that it it deprioritizes watching it in the moment the way it would for like, what happens if you miss a Game of Thrones episode? Well, you can't. If you're a fan of the show, you just flat out fucking can't. Yeah. With this one, okay, if you skipped one, but caught the next one. Yeah, you miss something, but it's not super vital. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah, I get that. I get that just for plot retention. So let's let's get into the weeds here. Okay. So let's let's dig into some specifics. So let me ask you, what was if you could pick a standout episode, the episode that mattered the most to you, which one was it and tell me why? So my favorite episode of this season, and I had quite a few episodes that stood out to me, was It Takes You Away, uh, which if you'll remember correctly is the episode with the uh, where they end up in Norway. And, I was about to say, that's yeah. the, the Norwish goblin, right? Yeah, and they uh, meet a young... Did I say Norwish? That's not You said word. Norwish goblin. N- Norse. Norse goblin? <laughs> Sorry. Norwegian. Norwegian Would be what we goblin. say okay. today yeah. in 2019. Absolutely. I still um, say Norse. <laughs> But what you don't say is Norish. That's just not a word. Sorry, in the weeds. Norwich is a word, though, as is in from Norwich in Norfolk. But anyway, so that was my favorite one. That's the one where they're in Norway, and they come across a cabin in the woods, and there is a young blind girl who is living there and has lost her father. They travel through a portal in the mirror uh, into what ends up being called an anti-zone and encounter a goblin-like creature named Ribbons of the Seven Stomachs into a mirror universe that is a mirror image of our own, but also contains the physical forms of two dearly departed women, the wife of Eric, uh, who is Hannah's father, and Grace, who left us in the first episode of this season. And Graham has been mourning ever since, as well as Ryan. Um, The reason that this episode really stuck with me was, I mean, there was a lot of reasons. I was really hooked from the first few moments because it had this very Scandinavian folktale kind of feel to it, as well as these tinges of horror uh, when they were traveling through the anti-zone. It was definitely atmospheric and chilling and creepy. And then once we get into this mirror world, we have Uh, just a kind of creepy alternate universe that is the kind of, uh, you know, sci-fi that I'm really interested in. Um, But what I loved the most about this episode was when the concept of the soul attract was introduced by the doctor. Uh, She starts to describe this idea once she thinks that she's figured out what this mirror universe is of the soul attract, a conscious universe and everything about that, the idea of just the doctor introducing a fairy tale or a bedtime story that she was told is amazing to me. Uh, the idea of maybe there having been Time Lord religion at some point is amazing to me. And the concept of an entire conscious universe that we had to banish because it made us impossible is amazing to me. Um, so I... I my brain just went in a million different directions as soon as the concept of the soul attract was introduced. And then, of course, it decides to manifest at the end as a talking frog. So what's not to love? Um, but that was definitely the episode that stood out the best to me. And I would love to dig into some of the themes if you would be okay with that. Yeah, I would love to dig into the themes of it because I I thought that was for a show that has a history of being groundbreaking 
and okay just being off the wall nuts, that might have been the nutsest of the nuts. <laughs> and, and and I say that in, in in every way, shape, and form a good thing. Because not only did it have a like it had God as a talking frog trapped right. in a parallel dimension, right. just missing people, um, or some sort of godlike creature yeah. and deity. You know, it, it, like you mentioned, it had ribbons. It started as like a horror. You thought you knew what this episode was, and in there, there were amazing moments. So for me, this was a episode where Ryan's character really takes major steps forward. Absolutely, with him refusing and not wanting to take care of the blind girl Hannah, and at the end, she hugs him because he realizes that it. You know what? It's not easy taking care of someone that's smaller than you, that cares for... Yeah, that's vulnerable. That's vulnerable. And like the sacrifices that you have to make, he's never had to do that. And it helps him see Graham in a new light because he realizes the position Graham's in, wanting to take care of him. And at least Graham's there. It might not be his biological father or grandfather, but he's there and willing to do the work. And he understands what that matters so I feel like that's a, a thread there that's yeah. really amazing for those characters. Those steps that he take even lay the groundwork for being able in the future to potentially forgive his father. Exactly. It's, like it's baby steps for what happened with his dad. Graham never, you know, outwardly tried to harm uh, Ryan. Graham never did cruelty to him. He just happened to not be his actual family. Right. He just happened to be the one who survived when Grace was taken so uh, it, it's a little easier to reconcile Graham and Ryan there, um, but those baby steps are the first steps and the most important steps to being able to let his father back in, which he doesn't have to do, but he will be more prepared to do that in the future. So it's interesting to see those seeds being planted with that character. Other just moments I liked to <clears throat> gush on the episode. Yeah, please. When the doctor's going to go through the mirror and she's like, hey, I wrote a map, and she wrote, assume the father's mm. dead, find out who the next you know next of kin will be the moment where it ends and the father Hannah's father comes back and sees that and the doctor looks at him to me is one of the like the best moments of the entire series yeah and a doctor defining moment and in this because the doctor is known to be the voice of moral authority in many other seasons and what we see with Jodie Whittaker's portrayal and the way that they're writing it is that she's there to like commune with the alien beings and to fix those problems, but a broken family is not her domain to moralize, yeah. even when she does. Like, And I love her decision to just look at that Father Eric and be like, well, you're a fucking monster. I had to write that on the wall. Yeah. Like, like you fucking monster. Yeah, that is so special. Um, it, it, just little good small human moments in this grand, weird, um, psychedelic, bizarre, yeah. haunted house meets Alice in Wonderland meets North mytho- Norse yeah, mythology. Yeah, very Alice meets, in Wonderland. Me- meets talking frog god. Yeah. Um, one other detail about that, uh, when the doctor writes on the wall, uh, as soon as the doctor and Yaz and Graham are through the mirror and, and uh, Hannah is alone with Ryan, uh, the actress Ellie Walwork is a, an actual blind actress, which uh, is very important to the blind community, of course, and to the differently abled community to have uh, blind actors uh, play blind roles and not have sighted actors play uh, blind roles. That's awesome. I didn't know that. So it's it's very exciting that that casting choice was made and that actress has been very vocal about uh, that being important. And when it's just her and Ryan and she references the writing on the wall, she says, you think I don't know what writing sounds like? And we get a moment of opening up to the nuances of what it would like to have different abilities, uh, which I really appreciate about that character. It's like, hey, you may think that I'm dumb because I appear to be disabled, but I'm actually a lot sharper than you think I am. That's brilliant. So very, very special. Yeah, yeah. It's really great because I didn't realize that that, I I didn't know, but most of the time blind people are played by sighted people Yeah, that you think of. So it's amazing that they actually found a blind actor who was phenomenal, like a standout side character of of the whole series. 
And that's another level of, of diversity, right? That's another level of inclusion and equity uh, in show business, at least. So I, I love that. Great. Um, so digging into It Takes You Away and the concept of the soul attract, especially, because that's what is so rich, I think, to me. Uh, I want to start with the story that the doctor tells about the soul attract once she's realized that's what's behind the universe. Do it. Let's get into the weeds. So she begins with a simple phrase, in the beginning. And immediately, your mind goes to Genesis, right? At least if you're someone who's familiar with Judeo-Christian teachings and writings and texts. So it's already established a religious sort of weight. And that's why my mind went to certain uh, places of philosophy when comparing this uh, creature or this entity to uh, things in the world. The soul attract, yeah. So the soul attract, as she explains, was a consciousness that existed before the universe, and the universe was unable to fully function or come into existence because of it. The very presence of that consciousness, that conscious entity, was enough to negate the existence of everything in the universe. It made everything go all wobbly and completely fall apart. So it was unable to fully form. The Big Bang couldn't happen until the soul attract was banished from that universe, creating you know, two separate uh, mirror images of each other, perhaps. Uh, I was interested in why it might be called the soul attract, because when she says that, it almost sounds like it could be uh, you know, a scientific theory, right? I looked it up and I was like, I wonder if this is something people have studied before, an idea of the universe being conscious. And people have studied that, but not with that terminology. But what do we get? We get soli, which you think of solitaire or solitary, uh, alone, singular, and tract, which could refer to attractive land, like an indefinite swath of space, or it could refer to like the digestive tract, which are uh, a system of parts and organs kind of working together for a function, or in some versions of the word, and in the earliest versions of the word, tract can refer to a verse of scripture. So again, we have a little bit of a religious context here that's very specific to Judeo-Christian context. So as we start to understand what the soul attract is in space and time, which is something separate from our universe because if it touched us or if it interfered with us, we would fall apart and it would fall apart, I immediately thought of deism. If you're not familiar with deism, this is a philosophical belief that posits that God does exist and is ultimately responsible for the creation of the universe but does not interfere directly with the created world. This is a prominent school of thought among Enlightenment intellectuals. Benjamin Franklin, Absolutely. Thomas Jefferson, all major deists. And they were because they you know, favored logic and reason and they disdained organized religion. However, they'd been brought up Christian, so they weren't ready to let go of their idea of the one God. But it also helps us you know, kind of to reconcile some ideas of the paradoxes that, in, that religion introduces, right? So if God exists and is good, and God loves us and can do whatever he wants because he's omnipotent, then why do bad things happen? Well, because God doesn't interfere with uh, earth. God doesn't interfere with human beings. So it does kind of solve some of those just through thought experiments. But it takes you away. This episode gives us a mythology that helps us to reconcile that even further, right? So we have a deist God who doesn't interfere, how can he still love us if we contextualize the soul attract as a God stand-in, or at least something that was there with us and next to us and cared about us at the beginning of time, at the beginning of the universe, he or it or they can still love us, can still be benevolent if their very existence is incompatible with ours and they have to stay away from us for fear of crumbling our entire reality. So there are other paradoxes that are introduced 
uh, that deism, you know, deigns to try to answer that relate to this. And the biggest one is the paradox of free will. So I like to think about the, the soul attract fairy tale, the soul attract bedtime story that Granny Five told as a sort of allegory for the paradox of free will. There's no real explanation for why the existence of a conscious universe or a conscious entity would make everything in the universe not make sense, except for, you know, if there is a conscious universe, if there is an omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient God, can we possibly have free will? The, um, the paradox of free will is best put or potentially first put by uh, Maimonides, the medieval philosopher, who says, quote, does God know or does he not know what a certain individual will be good or bad? If thou sayest he knows, then it necessarily follows that the man is compelled to act as God knew beforehand how he would act. Otherwise, God's knowledge would be imperfect, end quote. So this ends up being this never-ending catch-22. If God knows what choices I will make, then I can't make choices of my own free will. Yeah, wow. Wow. Went to some really interesting places there. You know, the problem of free will is one that I have spent a good bit of my adult life noodling through. And that problem exists both within the context of religious thinking and within the context of deterministic scientific principles. Right. They both bump up to the idea that we as alive persons feel that we have freedom and the ability, or rather we feel that we have an independent will that can act upon the universe. But both the bedrocks of most um, organized religions say that free will, even if the religions based upon free will, make it very difficult metaphysically for that to be there. And then in the deterministic scientific Right, like a Newtonian sense, yeah. The conditions of physical particles and their movement were set upon the big big bang, and we are all governed by those fundamental physical laws. And the idea that we make a choice is crazy. We're just all a bunch of molecules reacting together in an organized and understandable way, and there is no freedom. Right. And I think in this way, the way that you are discussing the solar tracks as a sort of melding between the the theological, the mythological, and the scientific and the deterministic, in that the universe had a makeup of freedom and choice and the beginning right. that was there called the Solatrex, that was expansive in terms of its space and knowledge and its ability to manifest and that when the doctor interacts with it, they both have to make a choice. So the Solatrex, um, or the doctor has to choose to stay with the Solatrex to alleviate the loneliness. Otherwise, the rules of both universes collapse. And the Solatrex has to make a choice to let the doctor go back. Right. Yeah. And I, I, I think what the, uh, what the anti-zone does in you know keeping these two uh, planes apart and what uh, is ultimately achieved by banishing the soul attract is that it allowed us to have free will and still have this thing out there that doesn't interfere with us, that doesn't interfere with our ability to make choices. So it kind of reconciles all of these ideas. It says, yes, there can be a creative force from the beginning of the universe that was there with us and that remains there with us. It can't touch us, but it loves us. And most importantly, it misses us. So there's this resonance with the... uh, the continuing themes of this season about grief and what it's like to miss someone and still feel them. And it's felt by this godlike being. And to imagine that just as an experiment, to imagine that God created us, whether or not you have any true beliefs or true faiths, to imagine that God created us and then was banished because he wanted us to have free will but still thinks about us every day is a beautiful thought and it's comforting and it also helps to 
create those character moments that we were talking about before, like with Graham and Ryan, with Graham moving just a little bit more into a recovery from the loss of Grace, with Eric moving into a recovery from the loss of Trina and into stepping into being a responsible parent, hopefully, fingers crossed. And I think with the doctor moving into a more welcoming and loving place of her family, uh, I think that the soul attract is also kind of the doctor, right? The, the final confrontation between the doctor and the soul attract in the form of the frog, the doctor calls it the maddest, most beautiful thing she's ever seen, and she's barely scratched the surface, and she regrets having to leave, leave it behind, but she knows that she has to. In her recognition of the loneliness of that entity, she sees a little bit of her past selves reflected back to her, like through a mirror, because what do we come back to time and again with the doctor? That they're alone, that their very presence, their very existence is unlikely and tends to negate the existence of their companions, and that the doctor constantly repels or kills their companions and ends up alone again in isolation. So she recognizes in the soul attract a friend. And what does she call her companions this season? Her friends. So I think it's really special to see that reflected back to the doctor and how everyone's grief is eased a little bit by just witnessing it together. Love it. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I love that episode. Very powerful. Can we talk, is that okay, about my standout episode? Or is there more you want to say? No, that's fine. Let's about talk this. about We your, can talk about this, too. Let's talk about your favorite episode. Well, I don't, I don't know if it was my favorite, but certainly I think... Your standout, yeah. The, most, the, thing, the episode that, that me stood out and the episode that I'd like to talk about that I personally have the most to say about, and it's uh, Demons of the Punjab. Yes, so, very good one. I love this. This is the episode where Yaz goes back in time to find her grandmother because she doesn't know anything about her grandmother's past and her grandmother doesn't want to say anything about her past. And what I found interesting about this episode, a few multi-layered things. One, Doctor Who goes into past all the time, into the past, pardon me, all the time. Yeah. In particular, there's an air of romanticism in which Doctor Who engages with history. Often the Doctor goes back into the past. It's in a, a imperial past, yeah. often a Western past. So he's in ancient Rome. He's uh, almost always in Britain. He's typically engaging with a very prominent historical figure, he or she, pardon me. Uh, they, the Doctor, yeah. um, interact with an important historical figure, and often the doctor's fate is linked to the fate of this important historical figure points if this figure is British. Um, and so we see that in Shakespeare. In we Queen see Elizabeth. that in Queen Elizabeth, in Churchill. Yeah. And a lot of the, the, the times that the doctor goes back to are really prominent and important, like, um, you know, crossroads of history. Well, this is the first time this season in general where the doctor goes back into the past and plays a more passive role in the affairs of human events. The doctor's not there to support the person, the artist, the, the creator, the general, whoever, in helping them achieve what they need to do for the greatness of Western civilization or human civilization. In the times where the Doctor goes into the past in this season, the Doctor pays a passive role with history, whether that's in the Rosa Parks episode, which is like, don't fuck this up, let right. this happen. Yeah. But then we get into the demons of the Punjab. So what struck me about this is that it was written by Vinay Patel, one of two people of color who have written in Doctor Who's entire show history, the other person was in this season. That's unbelievable. Kind of crazy, yeah. right? You know? So this episode deals with a historical event. And what I found striking was I don't often encounter a historical event in a TV show that I don't know a ton about. Yeah. And, us and, and usually a ton about meaning that above layman, but maybe right below expert. Yeah. So the partition of India and Pakistan is something I knew fuck all about. 
Same. And so after this episode, it left me wondering, what really happened here? What is the history that is the backdrop of this show? Because we have a Hindu man trying to marry a Muslim woman, Yaz's grandmother, right at the time where a British person on the radio announces that India and Pakistan will be two nations. And I think it's significant because we have two nuclear-powered nations with nuclear weapons in 2019 pointed at each other called India and Pakistan. And why do they hate each other? And I really couldn't answer that question. And this, to me, highlights the power of great historical fiction. What great historical fiction does is it inspires one to learn about an era that they were otherwise not connected to and does actual justice to the spirit, flavor, and and time while telling a great narrative that's completely fiction. Yeah. And Demons of Punjab, I will submit, is one of the great works of historical fiction of all time. Wow. I Okay, love that. Because it tells a story that's personally related to the characters that they have to work through while doing justice and flavor to the time. So let's, let me highlight some historical things. Yeah. So the radio announcement that we hear that India and Pakistan are to be split into two was the actual real radio announcement from Lord uh, Mountbatten in 1947. They played the actual one. Wow. So let's get, let's back up even a little bit. India is under the control of Britain. That includes the territories that are now considered modern-day Pakistan and modern-day Bengal. They are all under the control of Britain. During World War I, Britain asked millions of Indians to fight under the promise that they would loosen the controls that might lead to independence. Didn't happen. World War II, India was asked and tasked to fight under the premise that Britain might loosen some of the controls and give the some more independence, didn't happen. Then suddenly Churchill's government gets a vote of no confidence and the Labour Party comes in. And one of the Labour Party's main points that got them to political power was to end the empire. Because post-World War II, after the fall of Nazi Germany and the rise of communist Russia, in the West, it became no longer politically tenable or a nation to own another nation. You just couldn't say you're a free society when that society controlled another one. So what did this mean for India? Before all of this, in in 1885, there was the first Indian Congress. This was the first attempt that India had to get to its own sort of form of independence, formed with the permission structure of the British government. However... There was also a countery congress and party formed called the Muslim League. The Muslim League represented about the 25% Muslim minority, and it was formed with the hope, in tangent and cooperation with the British, that it could disrupt, fuck up, and ruin the Indian Congress. So the British government funded fueled and helped create a political party called the Muslim League in the hopes that it would make the INC, the first Indian National Congress, less effective. Much to the British dismay at that time, they actually aligned because what they wanted was a free and independent India. Flash forward to the end of World War II. There is a legitimate apartheid happening in India, which includes Pakistan, what we now call Pakistan, where Muslims, Indians, and Sikhs, the three religions, are not allowed to commingle. The marriage that we are seeing in this episode between a Hindu man and a Muslim woman was, in fact, illegal at that time. So it puts into context why the brothers so upset about this, because they're legitimately breaking the laws of the first time India is starting to pass their own. And it begs the question, if there is an independent India, how can Muslims live in it? And if it's an independent democratic India, and there's already an apartheid with the blessing of the British government, how can there be Muslims within this? 
So the Labour Party gets control. They say independence for India now. And while on the surface, this is absolutely the right thing to do, the way that it was executed was they gave this guy, Lord Mountbatten, pretty much free reign to do what he wants. And his solution, after intense negotiations that failed, and I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on this history because I literally started learning about it after this episode, his solution was just like, why don't the Muslims just live over there and the Indians live over here? <laughs> We're British. That Done. always works. Done, right? Yeah, let, let's just do that. And in doing so, created a, 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 a huge amount of social unrest, violence, and oppression. Here's the tragedy about this type of violence and oppression. Nobody knows how many people died in the formation of splitting up these countries. The reason nobody knows... Nobody bothered to count. That's heartbreaking. Sink that in. It could be 300,000. It could be 2 million. Nobody knows, but a large amount of people. What we do know and can say for certain, it created the worst refugee crisis in the history of humanity. 10 million people were displaced. The reason we know that is because when you're displaced and someone with power needs to put you somewhere, they fucking count you. They need yeah. to know how many you are. Yeah. 10 million people lost their homes in this reshuffling and reorganization. The greatest refugee crisis in the history of the world. And I, a bona fide history buff, never even heard about it before Doctor Who. And when we let that sink in a little deeper, how does that even happen? And the answer to that is complex. And there's not one way to answer it, but it's at least in part due to the fact that empires can write their own histories. Yep. They can write the own events of what happens. The conquered people often don't get a voice. And what we end up with, 2019, two nations with nuclear bombs pointed at each other. And also, so the nation of Pakistan was on the east and west side of India. Huh where the now modern nation of Bangladesh is yeah, because that was Pakistan because those were the two places the Muslims could live and they were both called Pakistan. Wow. That's amazing. That is amazing. Fascinating history. Yeah. And one worth thinking about. So what does this mean? This is not just a history podcast. History is what informs and flavors our popular culture. So what does this mean for Dr. Who? Dr. Who this season, took the conscious choice to pick the messier parts of history, to pick the parts that don't have clear rights and wrongs. That aren't Be romantic. Because the Muslim League and the First Indian National Con Congress both signed off on this solution that ended up really fucking killing people and displacing people. The British government signed off on this solution. The people in power negotiated this. Who's to blame? Who's right and who's wrong in this is not easy to, to completely define. But the one thing that comes resonating is that this is the outgrowth of empire. This is what happens when you conquer vast sums of territory and rule it and decide the fate of others. And it inevitably ends in blood and in tyranny and into the great expense of treasure that had to go into the partitioning of these countries. Because Doctor Who took the risk, and I'd say the courage, to tell true historical drama rather than romanticizing and celebrating the great figures of Western civilization, a predominantly Britain civilization, they transitioned and positioned themselves out of just a show for fun and giggles and a show that says, which is great and fine, but a show that says at least in these few historical episodes, we're willing to tackle our history head on messiness and all. And it says if we have a blue box that travels through time and space, it can basically go anywhere, anytime we can and are somewhat obligated to show you all of it. We can't just keep going back to Queen Elizabeth. We have to show you the things that have gone unwitnessed by you, the viewer and by us. 
And what's so interesting about where that intersects thematically with the alien threat that's part of this, the, the Jarians, is that the alien threat are a race of assassins, are a race of killers who are almost like a stand-in for imperialists whose new role in life after they have suffered great loss and have felt great grief is to go to places where people die alone and witness them. So they stand in for us, witnessing a history that we've swept under the rug, that Britain has swept under the rug, and forces us to witness them, and by the act of beholding them, provides some path to redemption, which I think is really special. And the question that episode asks to me is, how can we be a free and fair society based upon universal human rights when we don't address the own human rights abuses in our history and our role in helping create them? And if you're a Briton, that is a very prescient question. How do you deal with the abuses of power that led to deaths of anywhere between hundreds and thousands to millions and the worst refugee crisis that's also a conflict that could lead the entire planet into global nuclear annihilation today. How do you address the fact that you were an architect, your culture, your government was one of, if not the main catalyst in it and say that you're still a free and fair society. And I think it offers us an answer. And that's the good thing that it doesn't just give us the cynical question because in the end, when Yaz is there having truly understood the pain that her grandmother went through. They have a tender moment. Their grandmother is just like, do you want me to tell you the, the story of the watch? And she's just like, you know what, grandmother, I keep your peace. I, I, cause now that she understands, she doesn't need to hear the narrative and that the way that we forgive is for one generation to look at the other and tell them that you love them. And that is the way that we start to, to heal the, these great heaping big wounds that were created in the post-colonial era. That's beautiful. Another thing that this episode does in that same vein with historical fiction is to take these big and complex and messy historical ideas and events and massive conflicts of unknown proportions and shrink them down to brother to brother. It comes down to Two men who disagree but love each other and cannot exist side by side. A similar thematic uh, point to what we experience in It Takes You Away, that sometimes there is great love across uh, you know, arbitrary divides and being close together can annihilate each other. But sometimes we have to reach and try to convey and communicate that love, and it can save the universe. Totally. Yep, I 100% am with you there. So should we, uh, we're, we're pretty pushing up on time. A few final thoughts. Yeah. You know, in pre pre preparation for this podcast, you know, and looking at an episode like the ones we discussed tonight, I can understand how some Huey, Who fans were not into this season. I can, I really can, because if you wanted to see a swashbuckling young doctor with a sonic screwdriver blowing up Daleks, you didn't get that. And a mystery box, and a mystery box, and a mystery box. You didn't get that. And so I, I'm appreciative of the fact that you didn't get what you want. But I'm willing to testify that this season did something and many things, I should say, very new and not just in the gender change of the doctor. I think that is the most surface level newness that you yeah. could give to it. The fact that the doctor is now a woman is, is just one like that. That's the tip of the iceberg in the new, fresh, different things that this season did. Was it perfect? No. Are there nitpicks? Certainly it's the doctor. There's always yeah. nitpicks. Are there things that, you know, could have been better? Certainly. But I'm personally looking forward to mining this season more because from the perspective of a Midnight Myth podcast host, they gave me more to mine in this season than the entire run of Peter Capaldi. 
Exactly. And I'm really excited to mine it. And yet, if that's not your thing, I totally get that. If you don't want to learn about new periods of history, watching a time-traveling doctor, then asking, why are you watching a show about time travel to begin with? Yeah, expand that's, your horizons. That's why I'm into it. Yeah. I want to be like, oh my God, there's a period of history that I didn't know about that apparently affected millions of people and is great Doctor Who drama. Yeah. Um, some final thoughts in wrapping up the season from me. I, I thought it was interesting to reflect on how human this season was, even though it's a show about uh, an alien uh, ostensibly. Uh, because in this season, more often than not, the real villains were not alien races, but human nature. And one of the benefits of a show that can travel through time and space is that it can show us humanity through ages past and into uh, future civilizations. So it can show us the worst of humanity in white supremacy, in terrorism, in witch burning. But by doing so, the doctor always, always reveals the best. So she finds the last shadow of a doubt held by a king who's murdered innocent women across his nation. And then she makes space for one woman in Rosa Parks to resist and the ripples that that makes through the universe. She fights back against the most dangerous creatures to ever exist by activating love in the darkest of situations. So she helps us to reveal and activate our better angels. She says in the, in the finale... Uh, or not the finale, but the New Year's uh, special that felt very much like a season finale and a thesis statement. I'm the doctor and I'm backed up by the best of humanity. And that means something because of what she's seen of the spectrum of human nature. And it means something very optimistic for us. So I'm thankful for that in this season. Absolutely. And my final words are, you know, do your best to be nice, but never fail to, to be, be kind. kind.